Well, welcome to Palestine Deep Dive. Uh, good to see you all again. Thank you for joining us. Uh, many of you uh, join us every week from all over the world. We're very keen to hear from you today to take your questions. Uh, each week, we tend to look at issues uh, as they affect uh, the Middle East in particular, um, Palestine and Israel. Um, but of course, uh, nothing happens in a vacuum. And today is, of course, the, one of the most extraordinary days uh, that many of us can actually remember living through politically with uh, the situation with the the counting, the final countdown of the presidential election in the United States. And so I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Larry Wilkerson. And um, I mean, many of you will be familiar with Larry, but uh, for those of you who haven't seen him before, um, uh, Larry's a retired US Army Colonel and he served as the Secretary of State Colin Powell's Chief of Staff from 2002 to 2005. Um, and uh, Larry subsequently became quite well known for his criticism of the US invasion of Iraq, uh, believing that the CIA lied to his boss, Colin Powell, um, as well as taking issue with the uh, ongoing war on terror. We can talk about this later on. I think it's very important because we have to see things in the round. Uh, and also the role of what he and others have described as America's military industrial complex. But today, um, Larry, you, you're also involved in, I think, an organization called the National Task Force on Election Crises. It puts you in a very important role, um, I, I assume, as some kind of invigilator. But looking at this election and what is happening, can you give us some sort of indication of how it might end? I wish I could, and I wish I could be absolutely positive about that ending, as positive, for example, as I am about what has transpired to this point. Um, there has been very little violence, almost no fraud. Um, we've had Justice Department people present at some of the vote counting and so forth. We've had an unprecedented turnout, an unprecedented number of votes cast, and many of them by the new methodologies to combat the COVID-19 pandemic, but I hope they stick around because they're very efficient methodologies. Um, and now we come to the point where that process is going to produce an electoral college and a popular vote winner, it looks like. Um, not the massive margins we might have hoped for on either side, which would have quieted people, I think, quickly, uh, but a close election, but nonetheless a winner. And then we'll do all the recounts that are called for by state law and by court cases that might be brought and so forth. And we will have an affirmation or a confirmation of that winner, I suspect. And then I'm worried. <laughs> I'm worried because I'm hearing what the president is saying, which is just downright scandalous. And I'm hearing what some, but not all, thank goodness, of his Republican colleagues are saying, like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz. And I'm hearing the vibes that we heard in our simulations in another group to which I belong, the Transition Integrity Project, where we actually war game this, that sound a lot like what we heard in a couple of those war games where Trump's base, his core base, came to the street with their guns. Um, that's not a positive development by any means. Larry, for a lot of people looking in, and also for a lot of people who are obviously very interested in what happens in the United States, this great democracy, uh, there was a, when we were looking at all of these polls uh, in the run-up to it, it showed that uh, uh, Mr. Biden was well ahead. Um, but I kept on saying to people, it's not a general election, it's a very different sort of process. And it's actually um, a process that's actually rooted in the Constitution. 
um, and gives a lot of powers to individual states to decide how they conduct their polls. And there hasn't been a great deal of difference in how those elections are conducted over the centuries, except that with uh, the postal votes, the expansion of them. But tell me this, if you will. I mean, the, the, the mail-in votes, which is that these are all the, thing, the votes that are being counted right now in these, 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 these swing states, if you like. Is this something new or is it something that's just been expanded? Why has President Trump made such a big deal out of the mail-in votes? It's just been expanded. As a matter of fact, in Colorado, for example, and most people in this business would declare, the electoral politics business, voting business, would declare Colorado the model for the United States. They've been doing it for over 20 years. No fraud to speak of and very efficient election process. And there are other states that have been doing mail-in voting too. It expanded so massively, of course, because of the pandemic in an attempt to give people a safe way to vote. And obviously a lot of people elected to take that safe way to vote, myself included, here in Virginia. Um, it is, I think, a wave of the future. Uh, we're going to do this more and more probably because it is convenient and it keeps people from leaving their workplace on election day and standing in a line for six hours, some of whom those people can't afford. And so it's a deterrent to voting. This is much more an encouragement to voting as we see by record turnout. So I think the president though, to go to the second part of your question, doesn't like it because it has, it has rebounded to his defeat or apparently so. And it is the easiest thing to attack in his way of attack, fake news, uh, voter fraud, and so forth in the process. And it was the process that hurt him most, apparently. So he's going to attack it. I mean, what a lot of, a lot of people don't quite understand either is that if, you, if we've all been looking at the temperament of this quite extraordinary man who's been your president the past four years, and the one thing we've all worked out is that he likes to win. He told us that himself. I like to win. I don't like losing. It was possibly the truest thing that he said. Mm -hmm. What I don't understand is, knowing that, why didn't he urge his supporters to vote in person and vote by mail as well? Why, did he, why was he telling all of his supporters that they should go to the polling stations unless he was planning to, to, uh, to try and trip things up at this stage all along? I mean, which seems a bit far-fetched. Well, there's some truth to that probably in terms of his tweets and so forth, but behind the scenes, what was actually going out was quite strategic, if you will. They were in, they, the Republicans who were with Trump, were encouraging people to use mailing voting where the record showed Republicans benefited from it ah. and would benefit it, benefit mm. as they have. Mm. They actually have in, in the sense of many Republicans cast their votes that way. Um, maybe not quite enough, but many did. And in other states, they were claiming it was fake and fraud-filled and everything else, because in those states, their own polling and their own assessment showed them that it might be heavily favorite uh, or, or be heavily used by Democrats. So it was very strategic. It's kind of like the court cases they're bringing. I think Justice Roberts even commented on this. In one state, they're saying, stop the vote count, stop the vote count. In another state, their lawyers are saying, keep the vote count going, keep the vote count going. You can't have it both ways. I mean, today, communications are so swift that you, you know, the chief justice recognizes the absurdity of bringing a court case in one state, the opposite of court case, court case you're bringing in another state. 
I mean, so there's been a great deal of discussion, obviously, over here and over in, in the States and everywhere else about the mechanics of the election, you know, and the claims the president has been making, um, uh, uh, Mr. Biden saying we should bide our time and wait and see, every vote must be counted and all the rest of it. But there is something more profound happening, isn't there? And there's a, there's a, there's a friend of mine who's a professor of politics at, um, uh, in New Jersey at Patterson, and he's been saying to me for some years now, before the rise of the Tea Party, there is something profound happening here. Um, you, have to, you have to understand what's happened to blue collar America, working class America, the loss of jobs uh, and, the, and the build up, uh, the, the sort of the breaking of uh, the links to the links to labor unions and the Democratic Party and what have you. And a division that is getting so deep uh, and, and you, you can see it and, and, and you could argue that uh, Donald Trump managed to surf it uh, last time to help win. I mean, how do you feel about this? Because at the end of the day, it seems likely that Joe Biden will win. But it's also the case that, I mean, both candidates have got, as you were saying earlier, record turnout. Both have done incredibly well in terms of their votes. And so a lot of President Trump supporters are going to go away feeling very angry, aren't they? Yes, you put your finger on what most political scientists right now would tell you, if not publicly, privately, is our chief problem. And that is when you have a electorate that's split 50-50 roughly, you can't govern. Um, you can't govern your aspirational republic and you can't govern your everyday republic in uh, sort of British terms. It'd be like the king and the House of Lords on one side and the parliament and the ministries and so forth on the other side, the dignified part of government and the practical part of government you can't ever bring them together, no matter how hard you try, and you certainly can't bring the people together. But let me say it's far more complex and thus more challenging than just that assessment. We have what I would call the third or fourth, depending on how you count the history, great awakening going on. And it's the worst we've had probably since we burned witches in Massachusetts. It's when what I mean by that is fundamentalist Christianity. I, I, from time to time, call them American Taliban, and I mean that sincerely. These are people who lust for the rapture, who are all for support of Israel, for example, without qualifications, without any explanation of why, other than they want the rapture to come about. And when you go to these people and you say to them, don't you know that in accordance with your end times philosophy, that when Christ comes back to establish his thousand year kingdom, he's gonna kill all the unbelievers. His flaming sword is gonna go out and kill all the unbelievers. Jews are unbelievers. And if they're swift on their feet, they'll say, well, they'll convert it the last minute as one, con <laughs> as one congressman did when asked that question. This is a huge component of Trump's base, these dominionists, mm. these fundamentalists. They've also infiltrated the US armed forces significantly. Um, we have, all ranks now, people who are in the armed forces for Jesus. They are there for Jesus. They claim, and their chaplains claim, who dominate the chaplain corps in the military now, that they don't owe an oath to the Constitution of the United States. That's a document of the devil. That's a secular document. They owe their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying this to sound crazy. I'm saying this because it's a reality. I deal mm. with this every day. How did um, this so it's more complex than just this economic yeah. component. 
No, I get that, Larry. I mean, because, you know, I, 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 my understanding is about a fourth of the U.S. population could term themselves uh, evangelical, um, but they haven't just... It, it, it's different now. Don't, don't get me wrong. There are evangelicals who are good Christians, in my yeah. view, and they support things like dealing with climate change, like being a good steward of the planet and so forth. So I'm not putting the brush on them. I'm talking about those, I call them fundamentalists, not evangelicals, because they are people who believe that the rapture's coming, that uh, it doesn't matter what we do now, that we ought to do everything to bring on the rapture. Well, clear, clearly some of these people have had a lot of influence on Donald Trump. I mean, we, we've seen you know, uh, film footage of him having hands laid on him in the, um, in the Oval Office, uh, we've seen one of his uh, religious advisors actually trying to summon the rapture on the video. It's quite extraordinary. People here think it's a hoax. Um, I have to tell them that it's not. <laughs> um, but no, I, 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 sorry, I, I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to uh, bind all the evangelicals yeah. together like that. And you'll know far more than I do. But what struck me some years ago, I was actually uh, uh, working with a very close friend of mine who's an Assyrian Christian Iraqi. Um, and of course, you'll, you'll know the, the Assyrian a community in Iraq suffered horribly after the uh, Iraq war uh, and we were doing our best to try and raise awareness and also raise money for um, Assyrians who had been driven out of northern Iraq and part of my job was to write to every big evangelical church in America every single one I mean I sent hundreds and hundreds of letters all personally directed and I had one or two back very pleasant very polite but they were prayers and what what and that was it and there was no kind of financial support forthcoming. And I thought, well, you know, had, had a, perhaps I've been writing on behalf of, um, I don't know, another, the, uh, the Israeli government, then perhaps there would have been a different reaction. But yes, there is, there is, there is all of that. But I mean, you know, looking, looking at uh, what's happening, what's unfolding um, around you in the United States, right? Do, do, you, do, you, do you feel concerned about the, the future for democracy in America? Or do you think that because it's, it is working, the votes are being counted, uh, it is being, there, there aren't, nobody's managed to find any fraud as of yet. Do you think actually American democracy can actually begin to revive that uh, if it is President Biden, he may be able to pull people together? I certainly hope so, but I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. It is going to be extremely difficult, even if we get through this period with minimal violence. And he does, you know, on the 20th of January at noon, uh, become the new president. Uh, it is going to be extremely difficult to govern for some of the reasons we just elaborated. It's 50-50. The other side is going to feel like that it was disenfranchised. It's going to feel like that it was cheated. It was going to feel like that the Democrats did to them what the Republicans did to the Democrats before. Both sides believe the other side cheats. And of course, there, there, there is some legal justification for that. Look at California, for example. There are districts in California you couldn't win if you tried as a Republican because the Democrats have so gerrymandered them. Same thing in North Carolina for the Republicans. Mm -hmm. So there's legal cheating going on that ramifies each side's belief that the other side is a bunch of crooks. As long as you have that kind of divide and never the twain shall meet, it is going to be almost impossible to govern. And that's what bothers me the most about where we are. As a consequence too, we have a significant number of people in this country who think that dictatorship might be better. They think liberal democracy has failed, just like a lot of people in Eastern Europe now having experimented with it think it's failed, and certainly in Moscow. 
Uh, and so they're ready to see something else. And what something else they're ready to see is a dictator. This is why Trump appeals to some of the people in his base, because he promises to be just that. Mm. As you were saying that, I mean, just as a slight aside, one of my great friends um, uh, in, in uh, New York State was uh, a guy called Peter Jerry, whose antecedent was uh, Vice President Eldridge uh, Jerry, who put the Jerry into gerrymandering. Um, <laughs> and I think he was, uh, yeah, so uh, you, you, he used to talk very proudly of his family, but stop, uh, stop at Vice President Jerry. But I always, I always thought of Elbridge Gerry, one of our founding Elbridge fathers, put, put, put something into it too. <laughs> yeah, there was Elbridge Gerry, but, I mean, yeah. but he used to call himself Peter Jerry. Um, yeah. His father was called Gerry, so it should actually should be called Gerry Mandering. I think. I think that's yeah. where I think that's yeah. where it should be. But yeah, so um, I mean, that's all. Yes, I mean, you can see here is a, a, a extraordinary um, a, a, described as a populist Donald Trump. Um, and also an underestimated campaigner. Um, you know, he was that the polls got it all wrong. He was, he was, uh, and even now, of course, he's saying that, um, although in a slightly subdued tone, you probably saw him yesterday in the White House, this extraordinary um, litany of, of claims of fraud. He seemed subdued, but also giving every impression that he's got no intention of actually admitting defeat uh, or indeed perhaps leaving. So what does happen if he doesn't leave? And what happens in this next period? Because a lot of people thinking that the election is over and let's say Donald Trump loses, think that there's a new President Biden tomorrow, but there isn't. He's got another 79 days. What can he do in that period into, up until January? The individuals playing the Republicans in our war games with the Transition Integrity Project, some very, very competent Republicans, former chiefs of staff in the White House, former cabinet officers and so forth, they showed us that there was a lot when they moved in a scenario not unlike the one right now to essentially do everything they possibly could to one, destroy the White House and the U.S. government that was arrayed around them, and two, make it utterly impossible or nearly so for the new incoming administration to go through a reasonable transition and then to govern. That's what they did in, in the simulation we ran. Uh, every, everything from taking the Secret Service, and when I say taking the Secret Service, I mean almost all of them, into every Trump hotel around the world and putting them up for the maximum time that they could to gain their revenues therefrom, to going uh, to other countries and establishing uh, what, what you might call America's bona fides in a very different way than they normally are established to going to Pyongyang, to going to Tehran, wherever it might be, and polluting the water for President Biden and his team, to essentially stealing the furniture, the paintings off the walls and such in the White House. This is what this very competent Republican team did in these games. <laughs> Who will be the Albert Speer? Uh, who, who says to, who says to Trump? No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do any more scorching of the earth. Actually, you know, we have we have been thinking about this, Larry, over here. You know, we are thinking that we could offer uh, uh, President Trump safe passage to Ascension Island, um, <laughs> or, or failing that, South Georgia. Not to be not to be confused with the state of Georgia, but South Georgia, which is, as you know, rather a chilly. Right. In the South Atlantic, you know, but he might, he might have a Dasha there prepared for him by Vladimir. <laughs> well, I mean, it, but it's just quite extraordinary. And but when you were talking just then about um, the apparatus of government, I mean, one of the things that I was hearing, and really quite early on, um, 
and you'll know far more about this, is the fact that a lot of talented people um, weren't staying in government. They were getting out if they could. A lot of talented people were actually being fired. Um, a, 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 lot of, a lot of people, uh, the jobs just weren't being filled. And so, the, you know, there has been this uh, cry throughout the Trump term that actually a lot of government departments are understaffed and just not up to functioning properly anyway. What, what will be the state of the government apparatus, uh, you know, should there be a Biden presidency? I can only judge from the state of the department I know the most about and the most about its present condition, and that's Mike Pompeo's State Department. I have to guess from that that the other departments are in similar shape, and that is to say bad shape, extremely bad shape. And one of the problems, of course, any new administration is going to have, and indeed the bureaucracy is going to have, is growing up new talent. Um, the State Department, for example, I know Colin Powell and I looked at this very closely while we were there and tried to effect some change in it, is like the military in terms of the Foreign Service and to a certain extent in terms of the Civil Service too. In other words, if, if you want to grow up a platoon sergeant, it takes 15 years. If you want to grow up a diplomat, it takes 15 years. So if you chop it off at the bottom, you've got to start all over again and you've got that dozen year plus window you've got to wait until you've grown up a new diplomatic corps. And it's not quite that bad yet, but it is approaching those dimensions. And it's one reason why I was really hoping he was not reelected and that Pompeo didn't stay the secretary of state because they've done irreparable damage to the diplomatic corps. I mean, sitting by, I can, I can see just over your shoulder, there's a portrait of uh, President Bush. Um, now, of course, President Bush Sr. was a one-term president, but actually the, the, <laughs> the difference between President George Bush Sr. and President Trump, are just, they're just light years. Um, and one doesn't have to talk about policies, we just have to talk about temperament. But I suppose the, when I've talked to some people, they will say, well, say what you like about uh, Donald Trump. Um, He's a property man. He's a yeah, he's done very well out of uh, you know out of uh, you know going bankrupt and getting public money to finance his property. Ultimately, he's a property man. He's not really of the military-industrial complex, and in fact, he's not really he's a unilateralist. He's not really interested in intervention overseas. And could you not give this to to Trump in one respect that he hasn't been an, a, a military adventurer? Unfortunately. I can't because of what's still in the Levant, what's still in Afghanistan, the nature of the quote deal, unquote, which is a horrible deal being affected possibly in Afghanistan. And the fact that we haven't reduced our footprint across the globe at all. We still have more than 800 bases around the world, many of which invite further conflict. And just to give you an example, the rest of the world together, including China and Russia, have about 78. We have 800. We're an empire, and we're a badly managed empire right now. And I hoped, after I heard Donald Trump in 16 and 17, that I was going to see at least that from him, that we would trim this empire and begin to come back a little bit from the imperial nature required to manage that empire. Um, and the bad incompetent way we were managing it, even with that. But he hasn't done that. He hasn't done that at all. Um, he started out powerfully on the Korean Peninsula, for example. I thought we were going to get a peace treaty. And I knew that that peace treaty had to be guaranteed by China and Russia, as well as the United States, or Kim Jong-un would never accept it. 
And so I saw the diplomatic movement to do that. Then it just collapsed. It collapsed mm -hmm. because the president has an attention, attention span about six yes. inches long. Yes. Um, and, and, and all he was looking for was reality TV reviews. He wasn't yeah. really looking for substantive diplomacy. So I, I don't see much change except a little masking of the, the trim around the edges of our imperial uh, reign out there. It, I it's, suppose it's a disaster. You know, I mean, also, you, I mean, you were very critical at the time, of course, of the of the, of the license assassination of General Suleiman um, of, of Iran. But I suppose what I'm, I'm getting at is that, you know, there hasn't been, I mean, what, I suppose what a lot of people were afraid of was that actually President Trump would pick a fight. He did appear to want to pick a fight with Kim Jong-un to begin with. Um, but as you say, he thought he could get this deal of the century and his attention span slipped. But he had, he didn't. And again, we're thinking possibility of the run-up to this election. Might he pick a fight with someone? But he hasn't. And I suppose that's, a, that's, a, that's almost a sense of palpable relief, if that's just about it. It is. Um, and I'd give him that. I'd give him credit for that, because I happen to know, I think, fairly positively, that uh, he actually stopped a couple of moves, one by John Bolton and another by perhaps a wider array of his staff, to get a war going. Um, but in other respects, he's not done much to trim the empire. And if we don't trim the empire pretty soon, find an off ramp, if you will, um, we're in trouble. We're in deep trouble. Look at what he did with the aggregate deficit. We're headed towards probably 25 to $26 trillion aggregate. We just did an annual that's outstripped anything in our past. We're looking now at uh, debt that equals, if it's not going to surpass that we had in 1945 at the end of arguably uh, reasonable debt in terms of the war we just, con just conducted. It, it, there's no war going on right now other than these little puny wars on the periphery of our empire. So why do we have this debt? And why is the world day by day, minute by minute, working to displace the dollar as the reserve currency, the, the transactional currency, because Charles de Gaulle said that was the most pernicious weapon America wielded. In some respects, he was dead right. And now we are going to get rid of that weapon through our stupidity, our sanctions regime, our military, our war making, and so forth, because the world's sick and tired of it. And I don't blame them, frankly. Well, I mean, I mean, you recall what presaged the end of the uh, of the British Empire was the Second World War and sort of the economic bankruptcy of Britain, and essentially uh, our great ally uh, at the time, the United States, telling us that was we really shouldn't be having this empire, and if we wanted any help, that we needed to get rid of it. Um, so my, stu my students just presented a case study at William and Mary on the '56 Suez Crisis. Ah. And and discovered that one of the weapons Eisenhower used was a threat to run the pound, run a run on the pound through the IMF, and that mm. that got Anthony Eden finally to say, "I give up." Yeah, absolutely. And the rest is is of course history. But I'm I'm, I'm very keen to get other people to send in questions. We have got a question from Kieran in um, Washington D.C., and actually it needs us it leads us neatly on because we're talking about. Uh, Trump. Now we could talk about a Biden administration, possibly, and also, you know, um, the aftermath of empire, which is actually, in many respects, uh, uh, Israel-Palestine. Um, I mean, do you think, Larry, that the Biden administration policy towards uh, Israel-Palestine will change very much, uh, if at all? Looking at the people who are going to be arrayed around him, and I think I know pretty solidly who the major ones will be, 
the answer to that question has to be superficially yes, but substantially probably not. Yeah, a whole group of people who really were influential in my administration, George W. Bush's administration, who thought quite strategically that chaos in the Middle East, that is to say chaos that kept all of Israel's enemies at bay, not only at bay, but at their other at, at their own throats, was good. Good for Israel's long-term security. That wasn't the only motivation of these people, but it certainly was a critical one. They've got that. They have that. They didn't count on the so-called Arab Spring, but that was welcomed because they saw that as another element of this chaos. And well, they were right. Um, I think they were wrong. I think they were dead wrong. But there are plenty of people, and some of them are sticking to Biden, who believe that that is the best future for Israel security, is that all their enemies stay in chaos, whether it's Lebanon or it's Syria or it's Iraq or Iran or whatever. Um, and the one they haven't brought to total chaos yet, though Mike Pompeo is trying every day, is Iran. Uh, but that's what they want. They want this chaos all around Israel so that Israel thus supposedly is secure. I mean that that would that would make sense if these people would you know had had no no brains at all and couldn't see that you know actually permanent chaos in the Middle East um, is not going to help, for instance, the the safe passage of oil and gas and what have you um, to Europe and the United States. And what oh, have you. U.S. military power will forge that I safe path. <laughs> right. I mean, but I mean, there's another thing too because you know you know Donald Trump went out of his way to. Uh, yeah, many people thought actually he had a point when he said NATO, many NATO countries don't actually stump up enough money for this organization. We have to carry the, the, the lion's share of it. And, but he was particularly rude to Chancellor Merkel. He seemed to be particularly rude to Germany. And um, you do wonder, I mean, do you think a Biden administration, if it's not going to be particularly that different over Israel-Palestine, might uh, work more carefully and closely with its traditional partners? Um, and I'm thinking, I suppose, in particular about the JCPOA agreement in Iran. I, mean, I'm, I hear that Biden wants to take America back into it. Unquestionably so, I think. Um, and that's the principal policy, I think, of most of the people I know might be in the administration from SecDef to SecState. Um, and I, I'll just tell you this. When Secretary Powell, who had a really, I thought, uh, he was thwarted by the vice president and the secretary of defense to a certain extent, but he had a really good grip on where America should go and who America's true allies were and how we should uh, operate with those allies, whether it was uh, his foreign minister counterpart in Germany, Joska Fischer, who held his hand under the table literally to keep the German-American relationship together because George Bush, pardon my French, said F you to Schroeder in the Oval Office and didn't want to have anything to do with Germany, sort of like Donald Trump today. <laughs> so Yoska and Colin kept it together underneath the table. Um, and, and Biden was the man Colin talked to the most in the Congress. And why? I mean, Condi Rice, the National Security Advisor, chewed him out on the telephone a couple of times because he wasn't talking to Dick Luger, the Republican member of the SFRC, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And Powell told her, the Luger doesn't know his butt from a hole in the ground. <laughs> Joe Biden knows the issues. Joe Biden is the go-to guy. Um, so Biden does know the issues. 
He's been immersed in the relations of nations, if you will, for 20 some odd years. He knows the issues. Will he be, bring that experience and knowledge to the White House? You bet. Will he be able to fix things like the JCPOA? I don't know. That's going to be a rough one because the Iranians are going to have elections too. And they're probably going to uh, discard the Rouhani types and bring on the Ahmadinejad types. So it's going to be hard. It's going to be extremely difficult. If I were Iran, putting myself in their strategic seat and having some empathy, I'd tell the United States to go to hell. And I would yeah. go underground and I would um, build a nuclear weapon. I mean, of course, you know, biting away, it's, I, I know this because my, my wife is originally from Iran and her, uh, her family are there and they are really suffering from the deep, deep economic yeah. sanctions. And uh, not all of the ire is directed towards the United States in Iran. No, I know. It, I, I read the polls, good polls, uh, a lot yeah. of angst. In fact, I think probably I'd say the number one angst among the Iranian people is corruption in their own government mm. and their own government's incompetence. Yes. Um, yeah. but, but this business of not even allowing humanitarian assistance to get through under this rigorous kitchen-producing sanctions regime, as Pompeo calls it, it's just unconscionable. We shouldn't yeah. be doing maybe that. Maybe that's something that might shift quite quite rapidly if there's a Biden administration. Maybe. I think so. Look, um, Larry, there's a question here uh, from Mehdi. Um, and Mehdi asks, there's been much talk about the Abraham Accord. Can Larry please comment on Trump's deal of the century in the Middle East? Uh, and David asks, is it a two, so two questions. David asks, how can we protect our real interests from a rising China without getting into a military conflict? So... Two questions there, the Abraham Accord and China and avoiding a military conflict. I think the Abraham Accord masks some real problems, challenges, I'll call them. Um, what these accords that Israel has made or with is tyrants, tyrannies, um, whether it's the little Sparta, the UAE, or it's uh, the big tyrant, Riyadh, or any of the others, um, including Sudan, by the way, uh, these are deals with tyrants. Um, that's not whom Israel should be making deals with. If it's going to make deals with anyone, in my view, it's not even the people the United States should be making deals with. Dr. Rice gave a speech to this effect. And then President Obama gave a speech in Cairo, as I recall, to this effect. But you haven't seen much change in our policy in general. Um, so I think it's unsound. It may work for a while, but when those things start toppling all around Israel and more, more instability occurs, we're going to be on the wrong side. So is Jerusalem. <laughs> so I don't think it's uh, the thing that it's been. It's a transactional deal. That's what it is. It, and it looks good for that moment, but I don't think it's good for the future. As to China, I saw a masterful diplomat two masterful diplomats, actually. Well, let me say three. The Chinese foreign minister and his entourage, including Wang Yi, who is now the principal foreign minister with plenipotentiary, a sort of a position between the Politburo and the foreign ministry, very powerful man. Um, and Sergei Lavrov, probably one of the best diplomats I've ever encountered, and oh, my boss, my boss. Yeah, yeah, Colin Powell. And, uh, you know, Sergei, in many respects, reminds me of Sergei Biero de Melio, uh, the Brazilian diplomat who was killed in Iraq, who was just a superb diplomat, only with Russian. I mean, Sergei is Russian. He's not Brazilian. Uh, 
And they kept the relationship between the United States and China on an even keel by looking at it as a strategic competition, a competition in which there were some common interests and let's work feverishly on them, and a competition in which there were some antagonistic interests and let's use the favorable ones to fight those antagonistic interests and vice versa. Um, and it worked, but it worked principally because the president of the United States knew of the importance of China to Walmart and to his reelection prospects. Um, so he wasn't about to mess with that relationship. So you had that kind of Trump-like antagonism or interest from the Oval, but you also had these two, three actually masterful dem Democrats, uh, diplomats dealing with it. Uh, a case in point was the April, April 10th, as I recall, shoot down uh, or knockdown of the US EP-3 naval reconnaissance plane by the Chinese F-8 fighter. The pilot was killed, he went down in the ocean. And the EP-3, badly damaged, had to go down on Hunan Island, one of the most militarized regions in China. And we had this crisis. And, and, and the vice president and the secretary of defense were anxious to make that crisis boil into a new Cold War. Uh, before they could do that, however, uh, these people got on the phone and the crisis was over before the vice president and the secretary of defense could even deal with it. Uh, we got our plane back. It came back in pieces because Rumsfeld would not honor the commitment to send a high-level person to China to get the plane. He sent a, a Navy lieutenant. Um, we had sent Joe Pruer, former ambassador to China, four-star Navy admiral, the right man to send to China. Uh, so if you have someone like that in both capitals and you have assistance from Moscow and other places, from London, from Paris, from Berlin, uh, you can manage this, and you don't have to look at an inevitable conflict, a hot war. Now, you see, the, the, I think the, the Chinese Politburo um, absolutely taken aback at the, at the kind of language that was, has been directed uh, towards them. I mean, you all know that uh, you know, China, China has its own soft power, its own way of uh, extending its influence around the world. I mean, I saw it quite closely at the United Nations taking advantage of the vacuum uh, that was being created by the U a sort of US withdrawal. Yep. I also saw it with uh, Chinese media, for instance. I mean, in, in the United States, you can get a Chinese channel, CCTV or CGTN, they call it, uh, as you can in this country. Um, there was a kind of... Uh, Tried to, try to recruit me. <laughs> <laughs> They're an interesting group. <laughs> yeah, they, they, are, they are, yeah. So the... Um, so you have all of that, and then you know the president. So I, 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 my feeling is that they they would have understood that how Trump won his election and that uh, that first election and the blue collar votes. Uh, I beg your pardon there, Larry. Are you still there, Larry? Are we back? Oh, 
Ah, yes. Can you, can you see me? Yes, I can. I, that might have been uh, the NSA is all over my system. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do apologize for that. So, I apologize to, to viewers there. Um, but anyway, we're back. Um, whether, whether there's something from uh, maybe one of the Trump family has been watching and doesn't like us. But anyway. <laughs> no, I've, I, I've been told I'm not looked at with an algorithm anymore. AI is not looking at me, an actual human is looking at me. Oh, really? That's, that's so, what so I have no idea what that means other than, you know, maybe he like, likes to have fun with me every now and then. <laughs> well, look, I mean, just going back to China. So we have a situation now where, you know, China has been acting in a way in Hong Kong, which has uh, got criticism from around the world, um, but particularly from Britain and the United States. Uh, there's a brinkmanship with uh, Taiwan that's going on. Uh, China seems to be uh, in the South China Sea, you know, pushing its weight around a bit more, people would say, well, why, why shouldn't it? It's own, its own backyard and what have you. But, the, you know, those relations, uh, will they be reset under a Biden administration, do you think? Or, or, or has a lot of damage been done? There's a huge argument, and I think it backdrops, um, whether it's Richard Haas or whomever might be making the argument, what you just asked, whether we should go to strategic clarity with regard to Taiwan. And let me just say that I think that's the most dangerous flashpoint. Um, or whether we should maintain the last 30 plus years of strategic ambiguity, simply stated, uh, no one knows exactly what anyone means at any one moment, but we don't exacerbate the situation. Strategic clarity, of course, we don't have any problem with exacerbating it because that's what we want to do. So in that sense, Trump by President Trump, by elevating the, the, the level of visitor to Taiwan, for example, uh, to cabinet status, uh, which is a clear violation of the previous policy, makes sense. He's obviously, at least in a transactional sense, he's opted for strategic clarity. I think that's very dangerous. I disagree with Richard Haas on this one, my old boss. I think it's very dangerous. If you're going to move from ambiguity to clarity, you probably ought to do it very, very carefully, very slowly, and you ought to check each step with the other side. <laughs> um, that was the beauty, if you will, of the relationship with uh, Zhou Enlai and Mao Zedong and Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, step by step, slowly moving all the way to the Carter administration. Um, this is abrupt, and abrupt things don't work very well, usually between superpowers, and I, I call China a superpower. Well, I mean, just you, you'll be aware, aware of this, Larry. You know, China is obviously not a democracy. Uh, the Communist Party is the um, controlling party. And of course, people can take 20, 30 years to, to rise up through to the rungs. Um, I, I came across a Chinese diplomat uh, 30 years ago in London. He's now a, a, a foreign minister. That's how it works there. So these people, uh, you know, they take, they take the long view. Perhaps they looked at the Trump administration as being a bit of an interregnum. But... Well, who knows? But there is a question from Michael Gilligan. Um, he says, Larry, who would you say are the true allies of the US? True allies? Yeah. Um, I'd list them this way and I'd say uh, they are a part of my real anxiety right now because I know that there is concern. Um, Tokyo, where the new prime minister has people around him who are emailing other people I know and telling them that there are all kinds of conversations going on. Like if 
Kim Jong-un has a December, January surprise, a submarine launch ballistic missile that's trajectory goes over Japan, for example, Japan might seriously consider going nuclear because they will no longer trust the U.S. umbrella. To Berlin and what we talked about earlier, Trump's uh, derision directed towards Angela Merkel. Um, and for that matter, Paris and Brussels and other places that are key to NATO and the U.S. transatlantic relationship. I'm very worried about it. Um, and I'm very worried about what Trump has done. Let me hasten to say that in 1989, when I first joined Colin Powell, we actually had a conversation uh, about how we were going to get a crop of European leaders that weren't born in the war. That didn't have their feet in the war was the expression Powell used. And that was going to change the transatlantic relationship. It inevitably was going to change it. And so we, were, we started looking in a geopolitical, geostrategic sense at what that would mean for America if we suddenly had less allies in the world and maybe different allies in the world. Um, and we sort of lost sight of that as we got involved with uh, the, the business of the base force and then the Iraq, first Iraq war and so forth. But it was a good conversation we had. And I go back to that conversation a lot. This is, some of this is natural. It's what happens to the relations of nations over time. Um, but some of it is being accelerated and sped up and deepened and made more profound by just bad leadership in Washington. I don't excuse all the leadership in Europe completely, but I think the, the weight is in Washington. Well, um, and and that, that, that's bad. Yeah, where I am in, in Britain, Larry, I mean, people always talk about the, the special relationship. Right. I have to say, when I was in the U.S., uh, I never really heard anybody talk about the special. Yeah. <laughs> really, want to upset uh, my friends back in in Britain, but you know, it's clearly the relationship wasn't as important as people here would like to think it is. I mean, there are strong historic, cultural, and loads of other links, but the idea that that Britain is some kind of you know absolutely vital um, lieutenant to the United States, and but even yeah, and even those links, if you go through America like I have in the last ten years, all fifty states. Um, you find those links are disappearing for us. There are fewer what I would call Tories or Tory supporters <laughs> anymore. Well, they're, the they're up States. in the Northwoods, Larry. They're still <laughs> up in the Northwoods. That's where they are. They're up but in Canada. Tories yeah. spotted up there once. But um, no, but we, I just wanted to, we've got a couple more questions, but, but we were talking about, you know, what your work with Colin Powell and the fact you were looking at that time at, um, at leaders who weren't born in the war, you know, out of the Second World War and who could be friends. I mean, Tony Blair was the British Prime Minister, very successfully elected for the Labour Party um, uh, on, I think, three occasions. Um, uh, for what it was worth, I was for eight years on the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party when he was leader. Uh, and I had a massive fallout with him over the Iraq war, before the Iraq war. Um, that ruined his, ruined his prime ministership, ruined, I think. It did ruin it. And, but you see, yeah. my, the question I've had at the back of my mind ever since that time um, is because you have said that the, because famously Colin Powell appeared at the United Nations, I think it was in 2003, and talked about these weapons of mass destruction. He would February be, the 5th, 2003. 2003. And Tony Blair, of course, came and told us, he told his cabinet and he told us, uh, the National Executive Committee that this was the case. There were weapons of mass destruction. Um, there were British bases in Cyprus within, uh, you know, striking distance of Iraqi missiles. And, and this was the big push for um, 
for war against Saddam. My question is, you know, because a lot of my American friends would say, well, actually, Tony Blair was a restraining factor on President Bush because he was urging him to go through the UN route. But I've often wondered just how restraining a factor he really was. Um, do you think that, do you have any knowledge that Tony Blair was kind of almost more in cahoots with uh, President Bush and, and, and doing his best to help Bush go to war? Through my telescope, and that's what it was, a telescope, as chief of staff at the State Department, I would have subscribed to your former view that he was a restrainer who lost in the end. Through my students on two university campuses, over 400 of them, very bright students, presenting case studies on the war, I've expanded my view. I told the Deputy Secretary of State, Richard Armitage, recently, I knew more about the war and the cabinet and the decisions than anybody else, including Colin and Rich, the Deputy Secretary of State, um, because my students have taught me about that war. And what they've taught me about Blair is that he was a willing coalition partner. It wasn't just a special relationship. It was not just getting close to the U.S., not being uh, a pariah in, in the U.S., uh, drive to war. Um, he was very much a partner. And uh, I used to go back and show my students the press conferences because I thought you could detect in Blair's body language even that sometimes when George Bush would make one of his more forceful statements, Blair would look like, ooh, that hurt, you know. Um, but they convinced me that Blair was a willing partner um, and that he thought when he said, what was it, 45 minutes, uh, one of Saddam's yeah, missiles yeah. could hit, uh, that he thought that was the truth. Now, whether or not that was a politically expedient thought, as it was with Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, that is to say, they knew the real intelligence and they warped that intelligence to fit the policy, as your people declared it. Um, mm -hmm or it was a genuine feeling on Blair's part that he was indeed, the United Kingdom was indeed threatened. I don't know, I can't, I can't crawl into the well, head and my say My recollection that. is he was certainly a man in a hurry. And- uh, uh, That's uh, true. <laughs> and he was desperate, desperate <laughs> when we went to the United Nations yeah. and Dominique de Vipin and the Russians through Dominique told Colin there would not be a second resolution because he thought he was gonna lose the vote in the parliament, I think if we didn't get that second resolution, actually authorizing force. Indeed, that's all correct. Larry, um, there's another question here, uh, and this is, from, um, this is from Alex Bustos. And Alex says, hi, Larry, could you tell us about the war on terror? Uh, sorry, could you tell us about how the war on terror has influenced the mainstream discourse in both the US and Israel? Um, how the US and Israel have been able to weaponize the language of fighting a war on terror in order not only to dehumanize the populations they're fighting, but also to win support from people in Western countries? That's an excellent question. And I think the answer is even more pernicious, or I shouldn't say the answer, but the situation is even more pernicious than that question might suggest or intimate. I think we're making money off of it both in Israel and the United States. And when I say we, it's Eisenhower's old bugaboo. It's the military industrial congressional complex. If you look at the contractors that are spread from Kuwait to Saudi Arabia, to Bahrain, 
almost every country has got something, whether it's LED and in Emirates. I think it's the largest Air Force base in the world now in the Emirates. The second largest one is in Saudi Arabia. Contractors are all around that. Lockheed Martin, Grumman, Boeing, they're all making a fortune off of this. I think what you're seeing is the weaponization, if you will, as the term was used, to produce money, to produce profits. And I think that's the principal reason for it. And, and I mean Israel as well as the United States. Well, um, on Israel, Israel Larry, I mean, there's, I, mean, I think you'll correct me, I think it's between three and three and a half billion dollars each year uh, is given by the United States to Israel for defense purposes. Uh, do you think it's, that money- it's, he it's headed towards five. I, I, th I think the law that they the, oh, wow. the law they passed in the last administration of not law but the statute covering the financial arrangement um, actually raised it. I forget the year, but it's imminent. I think to five. So anyway, it's between wow. three and five, wow. and the same amount goes to Israel or, or goes to Egypt to bribe them to keep the peace treaty. That, I mean, no, that, I mean that is extraordinary. But I mean. You know, that either is money that is just being, you know, it's more gold that's being squandered and disappearing into the deserts of the Middle East, or it's money that's actually coming back to the U.S. because my assumption is that the Israelis have to buy um, U.S. munitions out of that money. To an extent, but not nearly as it used to be. They make their own stuff now, and they sell it to the warring parties in, for example, Armenia and Azerbaijan. <laughs> they sell it to the highest bidder. The Russian army had real problems a couple of years ago coordinating its core size movements in exercises because its drones were not functioning. Who saved them? Israel. They sent them really good drones and really good people to teach them how to use the drones. <laughs> um, I've got another question. This is the last question. Unfortunately, we've only got a few more minutes left with uh, Larry and it's been an absolutely uh, fascinating discussion and thank you to Larry but this is a question from Fahid uh, Abu Akko. Uh, Fahid says uh, today between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean we have 14 million people 7 million Israeli Jews 7 million Palestinian Arabs 3 million Palestinians in the West Bank and East Jerusalem 2 million Palestinians in Gaza and 2 million Palestinians in the state of Israel. Uh, what is your advice to Palestinians uh, with in dealing with the new administration, how how should the Palestinians be organising? What should their demands be? How, what sort of do the, what do they need to do to be heard? First, I'd have to say I think where we're headed, clearly in my view, is a one-state solution. I don't think there's any possibility of a two-state solution, not in my lifetime, and maybe that's not much longer, but not in the next generation probably. So what are we going to have? We're going to have, on the one hand, an apartheid state. We already have an apartheid state in the West Bank, Gaza, around Jerusalem increasingly. Um, a state that stays Jewish and does not allow its other citizens anything but third or fourth class citizenship. Or we have a state that recognizes reality, stays a democracy, and relishes all of its citizens and tries to make them as equal before the law and before the politics as it can, and is obviously not for very long a Jewish state anymore. Um, I see those things contending to the point where the Palestinians better be extremely smart and even empathetic to this um, with those, for example, in Jerusalem and Israel in general who might be sympathetic with their cause 
so that they can exploit that politically as best as possible and don't turn to violence. There'll be a real, uh, I think, struggle to keep it from going violent. Uh, once everyone gets, you know, that the rest of the place is going to look like Gaza at the end of the day <laughs> or the West Bank. Um, and if the Israelis don't recognize this, the average Israeli citizen doesn't recognize this and get off this current trend of, man, I'm happy right now. Economy's good, not too much terrorism. Everything's wonderful. Bibi, I forgive anything you do. Just keep it like it is. Because that's how, that's how the average Israeli feels today. Um, they've got to come off of that, and they've got to start looking at the future and understanding that that's not going to last. Otherwise, you're, you know, they're going to be back into chaos again. Chaos is very bloody for both sides. And it might happen at the same time these tyrannies are collapsing, from Riyadh to Bahrain to, you know, all, well, let's just all across North Africa, uh, throughout the Levant. I mean, Look at Beirut right now. I mean, I just got a picture of uh, a, a recent picture of Beirut after all the mess there, the explosions and everything. God, what a beautiful, beautiful city that's being destroyed. Mm. I mean, one could say the same thing about the whole of Lebanon. Yeah, um, but I mean, just going back to, to Israel and that, um, you know, the, the, the mood there, which is, uh, you know, un unless we face any pressure, well, this is this will rub along with BB and uh, yep. and things are good. And, and there's and know, Benny Gantz is not much better. Well, well, uh, you know, they, they were in a, they're in a kind of a weird coalition as far as we can make out. And, you know, both were prepared to go along with the the sort of the latest land grab plan that was um, that's been just only been put into abeyance the 30% as you know from the West Bank but I mean they haven't come under any real pressure well conversely um, they've had sucker really from this particular US administration right um, and the UN has been seen to be particularly toothless and uh, the Europeans will ritually say no it's outrageous you mustn't proceed with any more illegal settlements but they proceed and, and and nothing happens and actually those people who who are calling for peaceful means such as uh, uh, sanctions against Israeli companies you know uh, operating out of the West Bank um, they're often being closed down and by European governments you know you can't argue for this this is outrageous so and in, in the United States we have states actually passing laws to punish people who support the BDS Yes, which is, which is quite extraordinary. So I suppose we have to wonder, you know, what, where does the pressure come from for uh, the Israelis to, to begin to compromise and also for the Palestinians to begin to think, well, we need uh, a less sclerotic leadership. We need a leadership with, um, with some vision and the dexterity. Uh, you know, where, where is it all going to come from? Well, we're going to ask all of these, so many questions of Larry. And unfortunately, we have kind of run out of time, which I'm really sad, quite sad about. Um, Larry uh, was going to join us uh, back at the beginning of October and the title of uh, our show was going to be called On the Brink. Well, as it happens, we are on the brink today. And, um, you know, I was almost expecting that we might hear something from Georgia or Pennsylvania or Nevada or something. It never happens like that. And in fact, you've probably been waiting, Larry, for days and days for things to happen. Well, we, we actually, I think we have Pennsylvania and Georgia declared for Biden now. Oh, well, that's very interesting. Yeah. I, wish, I wish I could say we've heard it here first from you, Larry. Um, maybe we have. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank you very, very much uh, for being with us today. It's been illuminating. Uh, and uh, good luck uh, with all that lies ahead. Um, good luck for this election and for American democracy. 
and uh, let's hope that we speak again sometime soon. Thank you very much, Larry. Well, thank you for having me and thank your audience for some excellent questions. Thank you.